Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Radio of Domain Freeness. No, Domain Radio Free, FDR, Franklin Daniel Roosevelt, some damn show. So, hope you're doing well. Welcome to your Saturday evening. I am eagerly awaiting the calls this evening. And let's start off with a listener. Yeah, the show is in a different direction. Go, go. All right. Well, first today is Amal. He wrote in and said, Stefan has mentioned on more than one occasion, but most recently in the video about the terrorist attack in France, the reason for low birth rates in Europe is the high level of taxes. I think this explanation is not very credible when you look at the several nations that have much lower tax rates and much lower birth rates. I'm thinking Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore in particular. These countries generally have lower taxes than Europe, but also have some of the lowest birth rates in the world. How does Stefan square that circle? A fine question. Emil, did you want to add anything more to um, to the question? Um, I thought by, uh, well, first of all, as you'd say, great show. Uh, if anyone has taken any lessons, it means that you should be critical and, um, of course, question the things that you say if you think some explanation might be oversimplified or borderline wrong. Um, I think, first of all, maybe I should... Um, Make sure I understand your position correctly so I'm not attacking a straw man. And um, I looked at the video again. And uh, to all fairness to you, you do say in the quote in the video about the terrorist attacks in France. And one of the reasons why the birth rates have declined so significantly is because of the crushing tax burdens, so on and so on. Uh, so, I mean, to give it to you, it's uh, it's not like it's the only reason why the birth rate is declining. Um I think one thing that I also notice is that you say later in the quote, because it becomes so expensive to live in the West and people are having fewer children, if any. But if you look at, uh, again, Asian countries, you have quite low birth rates over there, actually lower than Europe. And I think it intuitively makes sense that people would have fewer taxes, uh, fewer children if taxes are very high. But I looked at the data and it doesn't really quite support it. Um, I mean, for example, I come from Denmark, which the highest taxes highest tax country in the world, and yet we have actually fairly high birth rates. Um, in Denmark? So yes. All but right, course, but... Hmm? Yeah, go ahead. Um, then I should, of course, mention there are a number of caveats to this because um, mass immigration changes this. If you import a lot of people from uh, different countries, particularly the Middle East, who have a lot, a lot higher birth rates than the indigenous population, this will then skew the birth rate a little bit. Um, a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, for example, it depends on how many you import, but for example, uh, people from Somalia, first generation, get on average four children. So if you add even a few percentage points of those into the mix, it does change the average a little bit. That's just my point. Well, I mean, it's not just the Somalis, right? I mean, isn't there the issue in Europe as a whole that immigrant populations, uh, either from Africa or the Middle East, and particularly Islamic populations, have birth rates significantly greater than domestic Caucasian populations. Yes, that's true. I just um, I was taking out the most extreme example because the <laughs> Somalis are sort of the ones that uh, deviate the most from the uh, sort of the local population. Right. Well, but so so this no this is a good a good um, example of uh, critical thinking approaches, right? So I make a claim which says that uh, taxes. Uh, are disproportionately, well, I shouldn't say disproportionately, taxes are encouraging people to have fewer children. 
And so then what you, what you would have to do, I would assume, is you would have to correlate that not with the population as a whole of a country, mm. but rather with the most taxed population in that country. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. And I was actually looking uh, into this a little bit. I was trying to uh, figure out um, where the most taxed countries are, and there's actually a number of problems. No, 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 you're, no. Hang on. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. You're not. You're not. You didn't hear what I said. It's the most taxed individuals within that country, not the most taxed mm. countries. Because the whole reason you tax people as a government is you are taking from one group and you are giving to another. So you would assume that the, the people who are paying the most taxes, which would be the middle classes, the people who are paying the most taxes, because the rich, they pay a lot of taxes, but they still have money left over to have kids if they want, right? It's, it's really the middle class that gets squeezed. So where there's a high tax rate in a country, they're taking money from one group and they are giving the money to another group. Now, you wouldn't want to commingle those two groups in terms of fertility, right? Because the whole point is that the people being taxed the most are most likely to have the fewest children, and the people on the receiving end of the taxes and, and the welfare state and so on, those would be the people who would be having more children because they would be on the receiving end, not the paying end of the tax um, sword, if that makes sense. I, I understand and agree with this point uh, completely. Um, what I was sort of getting into is that I tried to find this data, and I don't think it's possible to look at this data because just finding the tax burden for the population as a whole, although that's an imperfect measure, but actually a little bit more difficult than I thought because you cannot just go to the World Bank that only measures the central government tax intake. So the only data I could find was from the Heritage Foundation. Um, I think it's a whole side discussion of actually measuring the burden of tax because it's generally measured by GDP as a percentage of GDP, and this is uh, highly problematic because it's some uh, number that the government pulls out from its behind. Um, well, and of course, of course, the information dollars. is, of course, the information is hard to find, right? Mm. Because it's politically incorrect information, right? So, I mean, it's like trying to find statistics on male domestic abuse or um, African American crime. I mean, th these things are or they go counter to a particular narrative. So, of course, they're very hard to find. You could, of course, find out, say, for instance, you could look at, I'm just off the top of my head, you could say, okay, well, what percentage of people are on welfare? Is there any um, breakdown of fertility by welfare roles? And I don't know how you would, or, or you could at least look at the poor and say, are there different fertility levels for the poor as opposed to the middle class, as opposed to the rich? Uh, and the thesis would hold true if uh, fertility among the poor were higher than fertility among the middle classes. And my understanding is that the higher you go up in uh, income, the fewer children you have. This is part of the um, dysgenics that's occurring in the West, this sort of idiocracy stuff, mm. where the least intelligent are having the most children for a variety of reasons we've talked about before. And those who are uh, more intelligent, uh, they look at the cost-benefit analysis of having kids, whereas the poor are like, well, I don't have much to lose. I might as well have some kids. It gets me more money, and it's not like I'm going to become CEO of some bank anyway, so why not do it this way? So uh, I, I don't think necessarily just saying, well, you know, in Denmark, there's a high for, higher fertility even though they have – what is the, the minimum tax rate in Denmark is 46%. The maximum tax is 61%, the average tax rate is 53.5%, and the fertility rate is 1.73. Now, 
that correlation that you're talking about would hold firm if everyone was being taxed at the same rate. But, of course, as, as I mentioned, taxation is entirely so people don't get taxed at the same rate and entirely so that some people receive massive subsidies and other people pay massive taxes. And if you could find that data, then it would be a way of um, countering the thesis I was putting forward. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I agree with your point. It's just I don't think, I think it's a whole um, sort of a master's thesis project in itself just doing this with one country to figure out how much certain individual groups are taxed. I think it intuitively makes sense, but I just um, I just thought well, when if you it look at the macro it data, it wouldn't really make sense. But uh, you you um, explained that point quite well. Do you think there's also well, and also if it huh? if it didn't make sense, then economics wouldn't make sense, right? Because when when you tax people a lot, then their more expensive purchases they generally decline, right? When if you're taxing people at fifty percent then their more expensive purchases are going to tend to decline. I mean, all their purchases as a whole will decline if you tax them a lot. And children are very expensive, right? So if you tax people a lot, then they will have fewer children. And if you give people money to have children, then they will have more children, right? So it's, it's not anything too radical. It's sort of Econ 101. But there's an – sorry, if you had something else to add on that, there's another factor I think that's important as well, but go ahead. Um. Well, unless you have something more, I'd just like to talk a little bit about fertility in Asia then. Um, because yeah. I do, uh, uh, sorry, there's one UK, sorry, there's one U- yeah. UK study that sound, found there was a 15% increase in births among families receiving welfare for uh, children. So, uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I'll just move on a bit to Asia then because it's my area of uh, specialty. I also live in China now. And um, mm-hmm. I totally I appreciate the point that you make about um, which groups are taxed within the population. But you still have some countries where the general tax rate is uh, significantly lower. Let's take Hong Kong, Singapore, um, and uh, other other Asian countries as well, Japan, because they are, they're just borrowing all the money and it, the bill hasn't really come due yet. Um, I mean, they've had over a 20-year recession with you know pretty catastrophic job opportunities for young people. And of course, the young people in Japan have seen their fathers mostly just working 70, 80 hours a week and barely being able to see their kids. And some of them even what Karoshi, death by overwork, uh, one of these issues that, that happens. So uh, that's one of many factors, but I don't think it's fair to say that they haven't received any of the negative impacts because, I mean, they have been borrowing as well, but what they've been doing in Japan is printing money like crazy. And that, of course, has created all these zombie industries and zombie banks, which can't be killed and release productivity and capital and resources and labor to more productive areas of the economy. So I don't think it's like, well, they shouldn't have any negative effects yet because the bill hasn't come due. I mean, they've after being the economic powerhouse of the 80s and 90s, they've had 20 years of um, a, a really bad recession. Uh, that I agree with, especially the, uh, the money lending, the zombie banks, so on. But uh, the point I wanted to make is still the, the income tax for most people in Japan, the taxation. I mean, the VAT is not that high um, when you compare to government services, um, or rather how high the taxes should be if they would have to balance the budget. It would have to be significantly higher. But this bill has just been, you know, postponed into the future, although I don't think they can keep this game running much more or much longer. But um, as for the point with, within the population that you talked about, uh, there are a number of Asian countries that have very, very little welfare, and yet you have this um, quite low birth rate. 
I know Hong Kong and Singapore are not particularly good examples because those countries are extreme, extremely, extremely cramped. And um, in my background research, I found that uh, some Hong Kong researcher found a pretty significant impact of real estate prices on fertility because you can sort of squeeze one child into a small apartment, but then the second child, you need to buy a bigger place. And it's just so prohibitively expensive when you live in one of the top five most populated countries in the world by area, I mean. Right, right. Um, now, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead, please. And uh, I would assume that uh, some of the um, some of the real estate prices are due to restrictive zoning, or I mean, because normally when the prices go up, you build a whole bunch more units and drive the prices back down. But I assume there's some restriction. Yes, on um, building rather crony capitalism. I was. Uh, I studied in Hong Kong last year and I was shocked to find out that this country, which is extremely cramped, around two-thirds of the area is natural parks, so at least half of the area. A lot of Hong Kong is not even built on. And, you know, it's nice to have a national park or whatever, but, I mean, when people are living in cages, it seems like a little bit odd priority. So, I mean, there's definitely, definitely some of that. Um, yeah, I mean, now, I, I, I don't want to try weaseling my sort of definition, mm -mm. but tax doesn't always mean direct tax right mm. so there are there are indirect taxes such as uh, zoning restrictions and so on which artificially drive up the price of housing also depressed interest rates and I assume because Japan has a huge amount of debt that our, our depressed uh, interest rates uh, also drive up demand for housing um, which is a kind of indirect tax so and I don't want to weasel it uh, because obviously tax is only one component of the general the direct taxes like income taxes is only one component of the general cost of living problems that are caused by statism. So I'm not trying to sort of weasel out and say, well, I'm going to define everything as tax and therefore my, but it's just one aspect of whatever is going to depress your income is going to depress people's capacity to have uh, children. Mm, I, but if you use this uh, definition, I know you're not trying to weasel out, but um, if you say anything that the government does that sort of affects people's opportunities, uh, life negatively will depress birth rates. Um, it just, I feel like it, the, the whole explanation just boils down to, oh, it's capitalism, a government intervention that ruins this thing. Is that uh, correctly understood? Well, anything which takes away your money or either directly or indirectly by raising costs or lowering salary is going to interfere with your capacity to... To, to pay for kids, right? Mm. Um, okay. I will just move on to um, one more thing, a uh, little bit related to this. You mention often, uh, really intrigued by all the theories you have about uh, the woman staying home with the child the first six years, so on, the bump in the brain, that whole series. And... Um, well, you sort of ruined my life plan because I never thought that I would have children unless I could hire sort of a mate to do all the uh, the grunt work. But uh, now it seems it has a lot of consequences if you choose to do that. Um, anyway, then I look at, again, the Asian societies. I look at pretty traditional societies such as Japan and Korea, where it's much more common for the woman to stay at home with the children. I, I, after doing some Greek research, I found that in Japan around 50% of the households the woman stays at home, but yet they don't seem to be doing that well. Um, so to use a phrase that you often use, uh, this sort of, um, I don't know how to summarize it in one sentence with the um, 
the mother staying at home with the children for at least uh, the early part of the uh, the life, it seems like a necessary but not sufficient condition to have a good society. I don't know if you uh, understand what I'm getting at here. Not quite. If you could go on, I would um, appreciate it. It's just we have some uh, industrial societies such as Japan and Korea that are a bit more traditional where the children um, stay at home with the mother for the first couple of years. That's sort of the norm. It's not enforced by the government as in, for example, Saudi Arabia. And still these societies sort of uh, collapsing demographically. Um, I'm thinking here of podcast number 644 where you sort of try to take the uh, listener through a day um, of a parent in Canada where you have to get up, you have to get the children fed, you have to drive mm. them to work and uh, you know, you're super stressed and so on. But even in societies where a lot of um, mothers stay home with their children, people don't seem to want to have children. But uh, maybe this comes back to your your other explanation that it's because of uh, taxes, government intervention and so on. Yeah, I mean, ha having children home is not a magic panacea insofar as if the children are home abusing the children, then that doesn't do us a whole lot of, of a sort of magic benefit. Mm. And of course, remember as well that, um, of course, the um, uh, I, I don't know the degree to which um, radical feminism has spread to Asia, but there is this sort of idea of like, well, what do you mean you're staying home? Aren't you better than that? Aren't you supposed to, you know, be more Im important and, and all that kind of stuff? So um, that could also be a factor in why people, even though they could stay home, uh, why they would uh, not, not want to. But it's not magic. Like, well, if everybody stays home, then everything becomes wonderful. But uh, I don't think that does, uh, that does work. It depends on what the parenting is like. And I don't think there's a whole lot of peaceful parenting going on in Japan. Um, I don't know the exact data, but um, thinking, you mentioned that a lot of the uh, cause of crime is because of uh, adverse childhood experiences, such as being physically abused. And the crime rate in Japan is actually extremely low, or quite low for violent crime. So that well, sure, but that's true. Impact. That's sorry, that that's yeah. true of all Asian countries, right? And that's yeah, true of Asians in non-Asian countries. Right there, there's a general uh, step up of the prevalence of violent crime. The lowest being Asians, the next highest being Caucasians, the next highest being Hispanics, and the next highest being Blacks. So that probably has more to do with a, a variety of constellations of factors to do with different characteristics of different races than it does to do with uh, child abuse. That's a pretty intriguing theory. Um, so you're saying it's because of Asian culture, Asian, uh, you know, like, uh, I'm not sure I want to use the word race here. Um, are you saying no, this well, Asians are a race, I would say. I mean, I yeah, think that's but, um, not too... <laughs> Using the word race doesn't make you a racist, right? I mean, no, no, no. I mean, it's not what I mean like that, but um, I'm not really sure what it is that you mean by, um, by the cause that is in uh, something like Asians are less aggressive because of uh, some developmental factors, some evolutionary factors or whatever, or is it all because of well, the culture? Well, there, just... there, there do seem to be some evolutionary factors that are at play. No one knows the degree to which they are cultural or are genetic or biological to any specific degree. Uh, it's hard to think it's 100% of either one or the other. Like most of these things, it's probably a mix. But um, in, in the sort of R versus K reproductive strategy approach, and again, this, I'm not an expert in this, so you know, take it all with a grain of salt. I can't verify it. I'm just reporting what 
what I've read. But in the R versus K reproductive strategy, um, Asians tend to um, have much fewer twins. Uh, Asian women have, have fewer twins. Um, uh, Asian men have less testosterone. Uh, again, the testosterone tends to rank up through the races kind of in proportion to, um, to uh, propensity to criminality, which is, yeah, just tendencies. They're not any kind of absolute proofs. Um, Asian women seem to have a slightly wider birth canal, slightly wider hips to accommodate a slightly larger brain. And Asian babies develop uh, more slowly than Caucasian babies. They're able to walk, I think, about a couple of weeks to a month later on average. Uh, and of course, the, the more it's kind of one of these weird paradoxes of genetics that the more delays that an organism has in its development, usually the further it can develop. And um, so one of the theories as to why there's this worldwide or this fairly worldwide tendency for Asians to score the highest uh, outside of um, certain Jewish uh, populations, for Asians to score the highest in IQ is because of this uh, K reproductive strategy that the Asian race or Asian culture or whatever you want to call it, uh, nobody knows again for sure, has pursued, which is that um, the, they have uh, uh, fewer children, fewer twins. Um, somewhat lower sex drive, apparently, which also has something to do with um, uh, why fertility is lower in uh, Asian countries uh, and uh, that Asian kids develop uh, in a, a much slower manner than uh, kids of other races, uh, but end up, of course, uh, at the higher, slightly higher levels in, in IQ. Um, can you just explain to me why is this thing with um, Asian women having fewer twins relevant? Oh, uh, because it is an R versus K reproductive strategy that you you have fewer kids that you invest more in. So the fact that Asian women have fewer twins uh, than uh, Asians have the fewest twins, whites or blacks have the most twins. So it's one it's one theory to explain why this would be the case that there's these mm. R versus K reproductive strategies in place. Oh, so uh, the, the 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 K reproductive strategy is have fewer kids but invest more in them, mm -mm. and the R reproductive strategy is have more kids but invest and and inevitably invest less in those kids. I okay, I do get that point with the twins. Then um, I do think all this, uh, yeah, it does explain quite a bit of it. I just think it's a little bit problematic to use the sort of word Asian culture because it's a quite diverse group of countries, and I mean even within that's, Asia, that's there are huge fair. differences. Yeah, that that um, is entirely fair, and I I withdraw that. That was a <laughs> not very mm. not very nuanced statement on my part. Yeah, I, I know someone from Singapore who, um, as you know, Singapore is around eighty percent Chinese, and then most of the rest of the population are Malays and Indians. And even within Singapore, uh, there's a huge difference between the people of uh, Malay culture and the Singaporean culture, and uh, you know, in how well that they do. So. Um, Yeah, it could also have to do with the religion, though. But um, it's just maybe it's too broad a brush. I think often when people say Asians, they think of a Japan, Korea, and China, sort of East Asia. Um, because I mean, should we include Vietnam, Thailand? Uh, what about Indonesia? I mean, where do we bought, where do we draw the line? I, I'm definitely the wrong guy to ask about that, so uh, I couldn't possibly tell you. Okay. Uh, let me see if I had anything more. Uh, one found house prices. Uh, I did come about upon one little bit interesting thing. I'm not sure if I'm beating a, beating a dead horse here, but um, again, Hong Kong. Um, one guy said that. One guy found that um, 
actually the birth rate when people did get married did not really decline that much. It's just people did not really want to get married married anymore. Um, but uh, maybe you already touched upon that. People don't think it's a good option uh, to get married. Or yeah, that certainly is is an issue. And again. It, it takes sort of being able to see around the corner, being able to see over the hill. It takes a higher intelligence and, dare I say it, a stronger dedication to your children doing well to say, look, if I get married, there's X percentage of chance of divorce and divorce is going to cost me X amount of money. And I think in America, in, in, somebody just wrote and said, oh, it cost me $22,000 for my no-fault divorce and now I'm on the hook for $1,000 a month until my kids are 26. Apparently, you're now 26 if you're a dependent. And he said, thanks, Obama. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> I mean, I know that you can stay on health insurance for your parents if you're 26, but maybe that's what that guy means. But sm- smarter people are going to say, well, look, it's really a, it's a very risky business to get married, particularly, and this is why we keep putting information out about how to choose better partners to get married to, because if you can't choose better partners, then it's really Russian roulette with your own <laughs> twigs and berries right and so um so smarter people are going to say well it's not that great an idea to get married and smarter people of course um i mean people of various intelligences of course uh, love their kids and want to do their kids want to do best the best by their kids but most people i would say there's a higher incidence of uh, single parenthood among less intelligent uh, people and certainly mm-hmm. it's it's divvied up by class and poorer people and poverty and wealth are somewhat associated with intelligence of course it's not a perfect correlation but they're somewhat associated so if we take less wealthy as a rough proxy for less intelligent which again i know it's controversial but the data is the data then we could say that the more intelligent people will be less likely to have children out of wedlock than less intelligent people right mm. yes i do and agree so with that. so so poor people, if they don't get married, they may still have their kids. And again, the welfare state has something to do with that. But the smarter people, if they don't get married, are much less likely to have kids because they'll look it up and they'll say, wow, that's not great for single motherhood and single parenthood and all that. So um, so again, when you diminish marriage, you encourage the less competent people to breed. Uh, to put it as, and again, mm. it's not a hundred to one. Lots of smart people uh, who are poor, and lots of less smart people who are rich. But as a rough correlation, the tendency does seem to hold. Um, I don't claim to be an expert in uh, in marriage law in Asia, but uh, I'm pretty sure that the United States is a little bit particular in uh, this thing with alimony and how much money the wife can get, and so on. Uh, and I yes. don't think the laws, because Asia is in general pretty old school. You mentioned the feminism before that has not really taken hold in most Asian countries. It's still a very traditional. But isn't society. divorce, di- sorry to interrupt, but isn't mm. divorce fairly socially frowned upon? Um, I mean, it's getting more and more now. Um, what I'm talking about is more the economic consequences, how much money you can get. Um, I think it's a bit more, maybe use the word balanced here. I think the United right, States but, is a but as bit far as, um, Yeah, but as far as I understand it, I mean... It is considered to be a negative thing, a oh, yeah. highly negative thing to get divorced in, in Asia. Sorry, in, certainly I'm thinking in Japan from the little that I know and the few people that I know mm. who, who've lived there that, uh, I mean, the stereotype of the sort of socially conformist Japanese uh, doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't mean, of course, they're all like that. But uh, if there are negative social consequences to divorce, then 
uh, that that's going to be um, uh, problematic for people, of course, because um, they don't want to be negatively judged. And of course, it's become sort of girl empowerment time in the West. Ah, uh, okay. So in the West, you pay with your money, and uh, in Asia, you pay with your reputation or your social standing. If you get divorced, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, mm. aren't there these um, these bill collection agencies in Asia that just follow you around in a yellow suit so that everyone knows you owe a bill you're not paying, and that's enough to get most people to cough up? Certain segments of the West, people wouldn't even bat an eye; they just throw rocks at them. Mm. I do get that. Fascinating stuff. Um, well, I don't think I'll take up much more of your time. I'll just say, um, yeah, I think you need to spread the show more in China because your webpage is not blocked yet. You can still access freedomainradio.com. Um, which means you're not trying hard enough, but uh, I can see if I can spread the show over here. Funny. So we've been blocked in certain sections of the U.S. Army, but not in China. I guess that tells you something <laughs> about the U.S. Army. <laughs> yeah, if people want to know what the um, sort of um, the government-controlled internet is like, they can just come to China and see what this um, like net neutrality thing will work out to be. So oh, many yeah. web pages, you can go on them, but for example, I cannot stream from your web page at home, although I have 30 megabit internet. The government just slows everything down and makes it difficult, but they don't explicitly try to block it. Just make it difficult and ugh, just try to get you to give up. Right. Well, thank okay. you very much. Uh, you're yes. certainly welcome back anytime. Very interesting, uh, interesting conversational topics. Okay. Thanks a lot, Steph. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Emil. Up next is Alexa. She wrote in and said, I've always been very shy and often found it hard to make new friends, more so with women. But now I have children and I have been told that I need to make more of an effort to socialize and make friends for them. Do you think that it's important when you become a parent to socialize more for the interest of the children? Hmm. No, what do you think? Uh, I don't know, really. Um... Uh, I don't know, it's like, it's just, it always seems that people always, especially when you, like, as soon as they find out you're pregnant, they're always giving you advice, telling you what you, you know, what you, what you should do and things. And I just, most of the time, well, especially with my family, they always seem to say, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, to, I don't know, maybe fit in with a more, what's socially acceptable, as sort of normal, I suppose. Um, but it always sometimes seems to contradict what I feel comfortable with or how I would naturally go about doing things. Um, I think it is perhaps important so that they can, like, if you meet other people with children around the same age, so they can socialize with children and you can go through the same things together. But in this society, I find it quite difficult because I don't seem to fit in with a lot of the sort of people that I'm surrounded by most of the time. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this this question of socialization is, to me, an, a non-issue and a non-starter. What I want my daughter to see is that I stand up for what I believe in, I make a good case, I change my mind when better arguments and evidence produce themselves, and I am not going to conform to general prejudices that are unverified and unvalidated. 
So the idea that socialization is just some magic benefit, it's, it's a way of other people saying, well, I have value to you because I'm a carbon-based bipedal life form with a somewhat of, neo, of a neofrontal cortex. I mean, wh- wh- what does it mean to socialize with others? I mean, the, the people I've known who've had the most friends tend to be the least self-aware. I mean, once you have self-knowledge and you become who you are and you individuate and you become authentic to your own thoughts and original ideas and uh, perspectives, then what are other people in general going to have to offer you? If you speak reason, what's the point of socializing with people who speak uh, only superstition? And I don't mean sort of religion in particular, but just general unthinking stuff. I mean, there are religious people who've thought far more deeply about things than a lot of atheists that I've met. But what what does it mean? And of course, it's really important to recognize that culture looks at pregnant women like, mmm, fresh meat. They're going to give us fresh meat. We must get in there and tell the child how valuable we are and tell the child how they must socialize and we must get control over that unimprinted brain because otherwise it might spiral off into some Andromeda galaxy arm wrestling of individual thought and then culture dies and we're revealed as superstitious and irrational and patriotic, but I repeat myself. So when when you're pregnant, everyone's like, oh, mm, mm, fresh brain, brain, fresh brains. I must get my cultural teeth into those brains and drink deep of anything that remains original in the spinal fluid of the offspring. And um, I think that aspect of the, you must socialize the children, send them to public, socialize the children. It's like, I don't know. I mean, what, what do people think that kids are doing with their parents? Um, they're socializing, yeah. except they're socializing with, uh, I would argue, hopefully, at least if people who listen to this show, healthier people than they would if they went down to some local park. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, if, if you have right, the right friends who are a good, rational, sensible parents uh, and uh, they raise their children peacefully and reasonably, yes, it's great fun to socialize with those people. But the idea that just blobs of human skin filled with prejudice you must expose your children to them so that they get ah, right i mean it's uh yeah i mean i don't know uh, you, you, you know yeah uh, i gotta go to prison so i know how to socialize with <laughs> people in prison it's like well you will learn social skills there but who wants to right yeah i mean i remember i, I, was, I was especially my mom was saying oh like my eldest uh she's nearly three now um, she was saying for ages, oh, you, you should, she, she won't know how to socialize with other children because you, she hasn't socialized with other children. She doesn't say, uh, um, she doesn't socialize. She, she, she won't know how to, uh, um, uh, recently she, uh, cause, um, my, uh, partner, he's on, uh, low wages. We get a certain amount of, um, free nursery care. And, um, so, you know, everyone's like, oh, she's got to go nursery. Otherwise she won't be able to socialize with other children because you, you don't socialize enough with other families, whatnot, <laughs> and all this stuff, this and the other. So, um, she did go. And to be fair, she does really enjoy it. And she fine. <laughs> she socialized with them fine. I mean, it's not like she's never seen another child. It's not like she saw these tiny people and was like, what's that? <laughs> you know, she's, she, she, fine <laughs> ah midgets <laughs> yeah. drooling midgets that pee themselves run <laughs> well 
Well, the other thing, too, you know, I mean, because I didn't join a car thieving gang when I was a teenager, I didn't learn how to hotwire a car. Uh, <laughs> I just don't. It's not. This is general blob called socializing. You know, socializing. But but it, it doesn't. It's, it's who you socialize with and what does the child see? You know, children, it's like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, there's that all-seeing flaming vagina eye of Sauron. Mm. And it's like, sees everything, knows everything. And this is, uh, this is what children are. I mean, <laughs> always watching Wazowski, always watching, like Roz from Monsters, Inc. It's like, they're always watching. They're always watching. I'm just um, uh, working on the, the book on peaceful parenting. I was uh, working on it today. And I was just, it was just reinforcing what I was sort of writing about and thinking about that children will watch and watch and watch and watch and watch. And children, like the bodies that they are largely driven by, are empirical. You know, thinking of food does not make your belly full. And your kids are always watching you, always watching you. And what do you want to show them? Do you want to show them that other people, regardless of their quality, have value because of this magic word social, socializing. But that's like saying, well, other people who are English have this magic quality called Britishingness. Or other people who are white have this magical quality called whitiness. I mean, you, you don't want your kids to see that. You want your kids to see that you are discriminating. <laughs> that's, of course, right after I just talk about race. <laughs> but... But this, what do you want your kids to see? You want your kids to see that quality means infinitely more than quantity when it comes to your relationships. You know, otherwise Hugh Hefner would be the best known human being in the, in the multiverse rather than the nexus of a wide variety of uh, antibiotic treatments. So you want your kids to see that, that quality matters, that values matter. And so if there are people around who you can socialize with, who reasonably approximate your, your values and, and you have good relationships with and so on, then your kids will see that. But if you're just like, carbon-based life form, come to my house, magic word socialization, tick it off the list, then they'll say, okay, well, then people, um, people don't have to have value you, you, but, but mom and dad are manipulated by this magic word socialization to bring lower quality people into my life. And that means that you are not in control and in charge. See, kids are, they're like water in reverse. You know, water goes from the highest to the lowest level, right? But kids are, are you know, always sniffing and looking and seeing who's really in charge, who's really in charge here, right? And, and if you take your kids to some church and then the the priest says do this do that and your kids do this do, and your parents do this do that then they say okay well my parents i guess they don't have the real power it's the priest who has the real power and if you you know you send your kids to government schools so why am i going to government schools well there's a law you know the government has to we, we, we're taxed to pay for it so we got to send you it's the rule okay so then the kids go okay so my parents aren't really in charge the teachers are in charge, and the government, whatever that is, is, is more in charge. And kids are constantly sniffing, and this makes perfect sense. You know, we grow up in a hierarchical pyramid tribe, always sniffing uphill to see who's got the real power. Now, if your kids 
see that when your mom uses this magic word socialization that you end up spending time with lower quality people, they'll say, oh, okay, so it's not my mom who's really in charge, it's grandmom who's really in charge. And that's who they will then begin to conform to because children conform to whoever has the greatest power in their environment. And they're hardwired, I believe, to sniff up the hierarchy and figure out who's at the top because they either want to appease that person or become that person in the long run, right? Does that make, does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, well, I mean, I mean, we haven't really. Because um, I guess especially since we, we've had children, we've become very, very picky with sort of people now that we sort of make friends with. Um, quite, um, quite cynical. I mean, <laughs> I suppose I've always been kind of seen by my family as a bit of an unsocial sort of cold, <laughs> unsocial, strange person. Um, and, I mean, even like I said before, even having children, they'd be like, oh, you, like, trying to make you to be more of a sort of extrovert rather than, like, more of an introvert, which is, um, given the fact that I really don't much like small talk, I'm like, no, it just makes me uncomfortable. It just seems like a lot of effort for a bit of a nothing. Um, mm. It's not like I don't like to socialize, but if I socialize with someone, I want it, the conversation to be meaningful and interesting and not just ended up like talking about the weather or something. Wait, wait, wait. Meaningful and interesting. Did you hear that? <laughs> Giant scimitar swipe. 98.9% <laughs> of people have just vanished from your social. Meaningful <laughs> and interesting. <laughs> Decapitation. You're holding one hair. Of the human body, <laughs> of the human social body, but no, you. I mean, you, your standards do have to change, of course, when you have kids. Like while you were talking, I was thinking of sort of two examples. One is that when you were single, well, I should say with you, when I was single, you know, like like all single guys, um, I like you pick up a pita or a sub or something. I didn't want to cook at home that much because cooking for one's a bit of a hassle. But every now and then, I'd be sort of hungry, pop open the fridge, you know, find three pickles and some fairly dubious looking yogurt cups. And for me, you know, part of me is like, oh, yeah, well, expiry dates, that's just a marketing ploy to get you to throw out food and buy more. I mean, really, what could go wrong? And <laughs> so I'd rip over, you know, stir it up a bit. And if nothing, you know, if no eyeballs or tentacles pop to the surface, it's like, yeah, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> Good to go. And it was mostly fine, you know, every now and you'd get a little queasy. But for the most part, it would be fine. So these are the standards for yourself. And I had those standards when I was socializing as well. But now, you know, the idea that I'd rip open a yogurt cup at a week past its due date and hand it to my daughter, it's incomprehensible. Like it would never, ever happen. You, do, you have to just have up to standards. When it's you who is potentially suffering the negative effects of your choices, that's one thing. But when it's somebody else, particularly a child, that's another. And I think that has something to do with socializing. I also remember once um, uh, I was living in an apartment and... Um, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I was just in my, uh, I was in my um, shorts. I just had shorts on and uh, n nothing else, and I was hungry. And the light had gone out in my kitchen, and I hadn't gotten round to, to fixing it. And um, I wanted some bread and peanut butter, and uh, I found the bread, but I couldn't find the peanut butter. It was sort of somewhere in a in a cupboard, and it was nighttime. And I I tried opening the fridge, see if I could sort of, I don't know push the light around the fridge door so I could see, but I couldn't. And so what I did was I got a piece of rolled up newspaper and I turned on the stove and I lit it on the stove 
and uh, I was sort of squatting down with this fiery torch in my shorts looking for peanut butter. And I realized I was actually about three frames distant from the opening of 2001 when all of these apes are trying to, Oog want peanut butter, Oog have fire. And that's when I realized that maybe I should up my game just a little bit in terms of my living <laughs> conditions. But, you know, I mean, so I, but I could do that. I was a single guy, you know, uh, uh, willing to eat tree bark and whatever I could find under the sink with a piece of fire in my hand. And, but, but of course, it's incomprehensible. You can't do that when you have kids, right? So the fact that your social standing would increase uh, and, and your social standards would go up when you have kids, uh, I think is important. Also, I don't like the idea that as a parent, you're somehow different with other people than you are with your kids. So like, you, you know, Izzy and I have, I mean, pretty, pretty good chats and great chats about, about some pretty important stuff. And the idea, so that's our standard, right? But then the idea that every time I got together with other people, we would talk about the weather or whatever boring stuff is, is going on in the world, that would be kind of weird because then it would be like, well, wait a minute, is, is our depth of conversation some sort of guilty secret that, that can't be shared with everyone else? I think that would actually be ne- like anti-socializing to her. You know, well, this, this is the stuff we talk about. This is stuff we enjoy talking about. But when we're around other people, we never mention it. <laughs> it's a great, it's a secret. Do not let people know we have depth. They'll kill you, <laughs> right? I mean, I think that would be, if I can't be myself around my, my friends, uh, then I don't think I'm teaching her anything positive about friendship, no. if that makes any sense. Nice. Yeah, that's one of the things I was walking to. Um, I didn't. I wanted them to be, not have to pretend to be someone else because yeah. that's what they. You know, it's not something because, well, I tried that in my teenagers and it it just didn't make a bit of difference. You know, it still I still it was still horrible. So it didn't make any difference whether you tried to be what you felt people wanted you to be. Um, oh, I, and you 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 just lose. Yeah, you, you lose to the empty. You empty yourself out. You don't fill anyone else up. You just there's just one more empty person in the world. And you know, guess what? You die either way, right? Yeah, you can it either be work. yourself or you can empty yourself out so other people don't feel empty. Either way, you're going to make the big dirt nap biting eternity in worms for for you know. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's yeah. that's tempting, but it doesn't doesn't No, cuz no, and and small yeah. talk is is like is like the germ-ridden casual sex of social intercourse. It's uh it's just, I think it's really bad for you, and I think it's bad for other people. And I think it's, it's a way of killing time until time kills you. But anyway. Yeah. Me, yeah, it's just because um, I just want them to, like, think for themselves and not be heavily influenced by, like, peer pressure and make mistakes that you really, you know, um, in some of the, like, whatever, uh, public schools and things like that they go to, you get just don't want them to like you just want them to be not like uh, you don't want them to be bullied or anything like that but you i want them to be to think for themselves and not feel like they have to do something because everyone else is doing it um right and and the yeah. best way to avoid them being bullied is to not be bullied yourself as a parent right yeah by anyone and that that's you know bullying proof is just don't don't be bullied and then you know they won't be bullied any more than they would learn how to speak Gaelic if they'd never been exposed to Gaelic. So I, I think, but just, yeah, you just don't, 
don't let people push you around uh, as um, as a parent. And then they're sort of uphill power seeking stops with you. And they then won't be bullied. I think it really just generally creates this magic shield around kids. Um, so, um, no, I, I get it. Um, you, you want to not be the kind of parent or a person, really, where people around you can see, oh, if you push this button, they'll do X. And if you push that button, they'll do Y. You know, like if, if you push the guilt button, they'll come and help you move and drive you to the airport. And if you push the um, sexual inadequacy button, then they'll do this. And if you just, yeah, I mean, we want to disarm as many of those buttons as possible because otherwise you're just playing human shield the whole time rather than interacting with yeah. people. Yeah. Whereas if people say to you, oh, you know, you're, you're antisocial or this, they're just trying, they're trying to find some button. It's like this cold, clammy, sociopathic robot hand groping. To, ah, can I find a button? I must find button to push to get what I want. You, you've just become this giant neurotic vending machine that people are trying to shake yeah. candy bars out of. And uh, I think that's a, a, a terrible way to, to live. And it certainly is a terrible example for your kids, right? Because then they'll find yeah. these buttons and push them too. And then because they're pushing your buttons, other people will end up pushing their buttons. And uh, it's just a mess all around. Yeah. It means like when I was in my sort of late teens, early 20s, it was always you feeling pressured to be like what would be socially more like socially acceptable in your like behavior and like oh you um like yeah you didn't get yeah. invited to this party so no one threw up on you yeah so you didn't go out partying and drinking what's wrong with you <laughs> like why did you not do that well you should um, i did it yeah i did it i yeah. did it about three weekends about about three weekends when i was 16 or 17 i got drunk and uh, first of all, I ended up throwing up in my brother's shoes. Still sorry about that. Uh, and, and secondly, it's like, it was kind of fun. Don't get me wrong. I mean, drinking is, I, I get it, right? Drinking is kind of fun. It's yeah. just, it's not so much fun that a headachey, empty, expansive Sunday is worth it. You know, because yeah. I'm pretty susceptible to alcohol. You know, like that old Dean Martin joke. I'm not drunk if I can lie on the floor without holding on. But I get to spin something fierce. And, um, so, you know, lying in bed, it's like, Oh, somebody stuffed the bed going round around. And I eventually, I sort of get bad sleep. I wake up with a headache and I just feel like cotton mouth and achy and not happy. Can't really concentrate. So I'd have this whole Sunday of like, <laughs> can't really do anything. Uh, and it's just, it, the cost benefit, you know, just wasn't worth it for me. Yeah. So I think that was about it. I got drunk, not to throwing up, but to the spins once at an after, cast party for a play I was in and that was it. Since then, I don't think I've had more than two light beers in any 24-hour period and, and rare, rarely that. So, uh, But yeah, no, it's, it's like, well, you want, and I get, so when you're young, of course, you, you want these things and it, it makes sense and, and of course, there's a huge amount of propaganda that, that if you don't have these things, loser, mm. introvert, <laughs> right? I mean, lone, loner, unliked. And of course, because we're social animals, we want to, you know, fit in. And, you know, our genes are like, hey man, if you're not liked, that's the end of the road for us. Find eggs, <laughs> sperm, find something, be, be liked, be liked. Otherwise, that's it. <laughs> I mean, and anybody who didn't care about being liked didn't uh, keep those, um, uh, it didn't keep those uh, genes flowing for, for very long, right? That, that all terminated, right? Uh, but uh, no, and, and the standards, of course, um, what is it that uh, people want you to do i mean no, nobody says wow you know you you didn't come to that dinner party where we discussed crime and punishment and no moby dick loser 
right? You didn't come to that place. You didn't come to that uh, park where we sat down and talked about our hopes and dreams and fears. Loser. It's always something that is like you didn't take a giant social apple cora, jam it up your nose and turn it around until your higher cognitive faculties fell out your eyes. I mean, it's always like you didn't destroy enough of your brain cells. Loser. (laughs) Because the more people that are around in any social gathering – Quality is inversely proportional to quantity, Carabana. <laughs> but the more people who are around, the lower the common denominator of interaction has to be, which is why there's this proportion. More people almost always means more alcohol. Almost always means more alcohol because you have to reduce everyone down to like three brain cells above mere simian in order for people to have any kind of compatibility. You have to shave off anything important that anyone could talk about so that this illusion of a tribe can be maintained. This illusion of a community can be maintained. Uh, And uh, that's why it's like, come wreck your brain, liver, life, and future with us, or loser. I think I'll try the winning part of the equation, which is not to do what you guys are doing, right? I'm not jumping into the bacteria-ridden, frothy bubble fest known as the Jersey Shore hot tub, uh, partly out of fear of scabies and also just partly out of, like, I, <laughs> I've got a book to read. I mean, I remember when I was in theater school, we, got, we had a tour to go to Stratford, uh, which is sort of Canada's Stratford-on-Avon. And we were there to see, like, I think we saw 12 plays. We toured. We chatted with the actors and so on. And a friend of mine, who was a, a very good actor, and I've actually seen him act professionally since, he's very good. He's like, uh, you know, let, let's go out and do X. It was, and it was something, but I was, I was reading Modern Times by Paul Johnson. And I'm like, I really want to finish this, this chapter. And he was, really, he was really upset. And a nice guy. He wasn't dumb or anything like the nice guy. But... It is incomprehensible to people. Now, if he sort of come into the room and said, well, why don't you tell me, you know, what is it you're reading about that's so interesting? We would have had a chat about that. But, you know, he was an actor. <laughs> Not to characterize too many actors in too many of a ways, but it's like, uh, how can I get ahead? Who do I have to be? Do I have to practice fencing? Who do I have to lie about being able to ride a horse? Okay, I got to act like that. You know, I can't believe I got a pimple on my uh, head. I have to do it all over again. I can't believe, like, just, you know, with some exceptions, but... <laughs> Yeah. Actors, not always the deepest of people around, um, but still deeper than dancers. Anyway, that's another uh, another story. But um, yeah, it's just it's been a continual thing where yeah. um, there's this beer commercial that you always see on television, and everybody wants to peel back the LCD and and climb inside to all of these people who wear yellow shorts and do nothing but sit ups. <laughs> hey, lots of beer and abs. Well, in my experience, lots of beer and abs don't tend to go that well together. But if it wants to climb into that beer commercial uh, and, and have all the fun that these people seem to be having, you know, slowly bouncing up and down in unison doing woo-woos while lights flash around and some DJ listens in one ear and spins some platters and all that, some platters that matters. Uh, but that's not the reality. The reality is if you've got any brains whatsoever, you go to these kind of uh, simian pulse light disco brain death fests and, you, and for me it's sort of like a ferret in an aquarium trying to claw out i did i come on as a teenager i used to love going to discos and from the age because i had a pretty high forehead from a sort of mid-teens so i was able to get in and, and go to clubs and i used to love because i love the dancing 
and I used to go clubbing sometimes two, three nights a week. And I remember one time I was at a club, I don't think it's still around, called Nuts and Bolts. Yes, it's very subtle. It took me a while to figure it out, though. But uh, I was at a club, and I, some guys from my high school came, and it was, I guess, their first time in a club, and they couldn't believe that like, I knew everyone, and I was doing all these moves, and it was just great, uh, great fun. Uh, and I, I remember they never, well, it was my rep at high school sort of took a massive, oh, man, he's been going clubbing for like two years, and it's our first time here. But um, so, uh, but I liked it. I didn't go there for conversation or anything like that. Just great music and dancing. And um, but the idea that uh, you can go and have some great conversation while screaming at people under pulsing lights and disco beats is uh, kind of a misnomer now. I mean, even then, you know, my friends and I used to get together for what we called the decadents or the decadent dinners. We'd go out and buy the most expensive conceivable things at the grocery store and then cook it ourselves, like the most expensive coffees. Uh, the most expensive shrimp, the most expensive whatever. I mean, we just make these huge decadent dinners and consume like 3,000 calories at, <laughs> at a go, but actually have some pretty good conversations at the time. So, yeah. um, Sorry for this long fest, uh, <laughs> rant fest about my history, but um, in general, uh, try not to get too deceived by, you know, uh, through this veil, through <laughs> this veil of, of social appearance is paradise. <laughs> There are no 72 virgins in this paradise. But through this, you know, part this, wow, paradise. <laughs> through here, it's paradise. Because you, you sort of step through and, oh, wow, this is socializing. This is paradise. This must be great. And you sort of, and it's like, okay, there's some sweaty people with fairly big bellies and greasy hair. And one of them's throwing up in a corner. And it's like, I, I think I may have taken a wrong step. Wrong turn to the Albuquerque, right? This does not yeah. look like paradise to me. Um, um, also, I mean, I, I mean, I never really took that advice because um, when I got into my relationship, I was still fairly quite young. Um, and uh, we've been together for about, I think, about a year or so. And um, people in my own family <laughs> were saying, you're too young to be in a serious relationship. What are you doing? Why you shouldn't be in a serious relationship? You should be out having fun. And I was like, are you telling me to go out and sleep around? Because <laughs> that's not very good advice. No, 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 not not sleep around. But, you know, you should have a bit of fun. <laughs> so you're telling me to be a tease. That's not good either. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? See, we want um, you to tease unstable guys till you get beaten up. Or yeah. we find that you're depressingly disease-free at the moment. And without a pregnancy scare, what is youth all about? So get out there and get terrified and get some antibiotics. Yeah. Well, I was like, well, I don't want to do those things because I'm quite happy where I am with him. Why would I want to go out and fool around with some guy I barely know? I mean, I've, I know so many like girls when I was in college and stuff who lost their virginities on one night stands and they were like, oh, why did I do that? And, um, like you've like even like members of my own family lost their virginity really young to some guy they don't even remember, and it was they were like oh, it's horrible because obviously you didn't really care about them, and it can be rather painful for women the first time, so it was like really uncomfortable for them. And I was like, why would I want to go? Why would I want to do you telling me to go out and do these things when I've seen the repercussions of it, and it's not good. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like you've got this beautiful flower of your womanhood, this beautiful bouquet that has, 
has grown uh, after Menses and you're walking down the street, oh, these are the most beautiful flowers I ever seen. Who am I going to bestow these beautiful flowers to? Who am I going to love enough to share this bouquet of myself with? And then some guy in a milk van truck just grabs him out of your hand when he drives by. Ha ha, got him! <laughs> it's like, well, that was lovely, wasn't it? There's a hallmark moment for you. Deal. Just, yeah, just always amazing. Like, it just as like, didn't seem very good advice to be given out, really. So, like, well, you shouldn't really be. I mean, I know this, like, all the protection now, and it's like, I mean, I'm not, you know, I was, I'm not like, I wasn't like saying, oh, I don't think, I don't, I'm not saying I have to be married or anything, but there should be something there. I, I mean, I was, people always saying, oh, how it's so much better if you care about one another. Um, so why would I, you know, it's just, <laughs> it just always seemed to baffle me. And it never seemed to end well for the people who did go out and do those sorts of things. So Yeah, I'll, I'll take advice on how to have fun from people who are happy. Mm. But if they don't seem to be that happy, oh, come on, have a bit of fun. It's like, mm. yeah, it's, it just, just doesn't seem believable to me. No, this idea like, well, don't fall in love and have monogamous sex when there are so many careless half drunk people out there who can pass out on you it's like I, I think why would you want to sit up in first class when there are sweaty farty fat people in the back eating hummus you could wedge yourself between it's like i think i'll just stick with first class actually i've never flown first class in my life but i hear it's nice <laughs> yeah i hear it's nice too uh, um well yes yeah, so like they had tons of relate and i'm still in the same relationship now so <laughs> So what happened me? Right. No, and that's that's good. I mean, yeah. that's that is choosing quality over quantity, right? Yeah. Oh, good for you. Listen, do you mind if we move on to the next no, caller? I fine. have this. Fine. You know, I have this. Um, I watched the movie Wild the other night with uh, a um, non-made-up Reese Witherspoon, and um, I sort of feel like if she can get to the end of the uh, PCT, uh, I can get to the end of a caller list once. And with less cold gruel, but um, yeah, it's great, great chat. Uh, let us know how it goes. But um, you know, I, I'm with you, uh, kids. Um, I, I want them to learn that I have standards of social interaction, and I'm free and easy with people who have reasonable values. But uh, I don't feel the need to stack people with. Uh, I, I don't feel the need to stack the house with carbon dioxide exhaling bipeds just because we share uh, the capacity to walk on our hind legs. So good for you. Right, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, up next is Chris. And Chris wrote in and said, I live in Europe where there is a lot of talk and push for unconditional basic income, which is pretty much welfare on steroids. It would be for every person over the age of 18. That would be money you get from the government for doing absolutely nothing. I'm wondering, can this actually be good if you're smart enough to take advantage of it? The idea is that taxes would be raised and the poor would have more money to spend, which means that if you're a large corporation like Google, Apple, etc., you can use tax havens, like they already do, to reduce your taxes to less than 2.5%, maybe less. So those large corporations won't be affected by the tax raises that much. But then, if the people have more money to spend on iPhones, that means that your corporation (laughs) will be able to raise the prices of their products without much problem and backlash from the people. And with the current robotics innovations, others will be able to fire more people and replace them with robots, and higher profits mean higher stock prices and more bonuses. It will be catastrophic in the long term, especially for the poor, 
but will it be profitable for the corporations? And is it bad if those corporations do that? If I was Google, I would use that exploitation called welfare of the future generations to make a profit from it. I mean, if the government and the public wants unconditional basic income, what's wrong if I change my business plan to make more profits? Or do you think that's immoral? Because if others are foolish enough to make these decisions, is it really bad or evil to take advantage of it? <laughs> Sorry, that's dope. That was my <laughs> yeah, this idea, this idea that you know, this idea that businesses should pay people more so that those people will have more money to spend, or that the government should give people money so those people will have money to spend, is oh, it's so ridiculous. I'm not saying this is your idea, but but it's. I mean, just the only question you have to ask people is, okay, let's say that you run a um, you run a convenience store, and some guy comes in and says, hey man. Give me 50 bucks out of the till, and I promise I'm going to spend it here. And what would you say? Mm, I would say that's crazy. Well, no, but you see, you've increased economic activity because you've made some sales. Yeah, but uh, that's not what I meant. Uh, the idea of basic income is not that, for example, Google is going to pay more taxes, but uh, it will be by printing money or borrowing. So the corporation won't lose any money, but the people will have more money to pay. No, no, the people won't have more money. <laughs> Transferring money does not make more money. If I give you a diamond ring, I don't get two diamond rings, right? The mere transfer, not only does it not increase the amount of money in society, but it decreases it because there's all the overhead of collecting and enabling and, and enforcing the transfer. So there's simply no way that transferring money can result in more money in society. And the fact that very few people seem to know what actually creates wealth, what actually creates more money in society. I mean, it's, it's sad how few people know that. It's, it's basically when you can use the same amount of resources and produce more goods. Right? That, that's how wealth increases in society, right? Okay. So, I mean, what, one big example is uh, up until, I think, the 12th, 11th or 12th century, they had this bridle around horses and oxen that would w went around their neck. And what that meant was the more they pulled, the more they choked. And so you couldn't get them to do much. Whereas when they got the shoulder harness together for horses, they figured it out. It's like, hey, let's give them a shoulder harness. They could pull significantly more. And they could plow more. They could plow more deeply. You needed fewer horses to produce the same um, – fewer horses to produce the same amount of crops or with the same number of horses and oxen, you could produce far more crops. That's an example of the same amount of resources producing much more uh, and much better of, of an outcome. That's how you end up with – this is an example of how much – how you end up with more things in society. And the idea that, well, you're just going to pay people money and that's going to stimulate economic activity is falling for the oldest trick in bad economics. No, in, I didn't in, say and, that. I didn't say that. Sorry, what did you say? I thought uh, you said that, that they would, they'd have more money to spend if we gave them some sort of guaranteed income. Well, they'll have more money to spend, but all the companies would just raise the prices. So they'd spend the same amount, but the companies would make more money, you know. 
they would have less money to spend. Well, I mean, might... sorry, the individual society as a whole would have less money, but the individuals would have maybe a little bit more money, but society as a whole would have less money. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is. So, I mean, yeah, it's a, okay. it's a bad idea. Yeah. Now that, that I can, I can see a case. I can see a case wherein you could make a practical argument, and I, and this is probably where you're coming from, a practical argument for a guaranteed minimum income. No, I'm not. Uh, actually, my question was different. Uh, it was: Is it immoral to basically take advantage of people in that way? For example, if people are given basic income, let's say ten or fifteen thousand euro every year, would it be morally wrong if, for example, Apple raises the prices of their iPhones just so they make more profit because if people have think they have more money? You know, there would be. Why would that? Why would that be morally wrong? Yeah, that's what I was asking. Uh, is it morally wrong? Well, that's like saying. That's like saying. Listen, if I if I lose a lot of weight, is it immoral for me to date more attractive people? No. Okay, so because you can't, right? So you know, that's the way it works. So basically, you're saying that if you're a bank, you know, it's not immoral to abuse people. You know, the future generations. If well, hang on, hang on. No, no, no. You went, you went from raising prices because people can afford to pay more to using the word abuse. That's, that's a bit of a different Well, it's kind of abuse because uh, that basic income won't come from, I don't know, God or something like that. It will be borrowed in the future generation. Wait, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. So wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that poor people who were offered ten to 15,000 euros that they didn't earn, yeah. that's not abuse and corruption. Yes, but if that somebody is charges 20 yes, bucks more, hang on, if, hang on, if somebody charges 20 bucks more for an iPhone, that is corruption. But the people who are poor, who are getting this guaranteed minimum income, are receiving far more money for doing nothing than Apple would by increasing the price of its iPhone. At least it's producing an iPhone. I mean, how is one corruption and abuse uh, for the Apple company, but it's not corruption and abuse to vote for politicians who are going to give you 15,000 euros of other people's hard-earned money? Okay. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is it immoral or not? Um, I guess not. No, it's immoral for the people to say, I want the government to use its guns to go get me 15,000 euros and give it to me without me earning it, either through being nice and helpful and people giving it to me voluntarily or through doing some hard work or, or even easy work or anything like that. The immorality is, hey, Mr. Politician, go use that great military army and gun power that you have to go and take money from other people and give it to me. Well, that's living as the recipient of stolen goods. There's nothing moral about that. Now, the question of, well, people have more money and the poor people have more money. Therefore, there's a higher demand for iPhones. Therefore, the price of iPhones is going to go up. But that's just basic econ, right? All other things being equal, when you uh, increase demand, the uh, price will generally rise. That's nothing corrupt about that. What's corrupt is taking the money by force to give to the poor people. Okay. Okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I honestly thought that uh, you were trying to convince me that it was immoral or something like that. I don't know. That why. what was immoral? Well, for companies to make profit from people suffering, you know. What do you mean, make profit from people suffering? I don't understand what that means. 
well, who's suffering in this situation? Is someone suffering because they can't afford an iPhone? Is that really what we've come to define as suffering now, that they have to buy a Galaxy Tab or something, a Windows phone or something slightly cheaper than an iPhone? This is now what we're calling suffering? For all good people, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I hope that that's not your definition of what suffering is, you know. No, I don't mean to pull the C card, but no. I went through chemotherapy and radiation therapy. There was some suffering involved in that, you know, the degree to which my heart is going to go out for like, hey, man, I didn't make a lot of money. I, I got to use a non-Apple product. It's like, oh, my God, <laughs> the apocalypse is upon us. Let me send you a Hallmark card called, oh, I'm sorry, you had to go Android. How terrible. <laughs> <laughs> throughout most people in human history and most people across the world right now first world problems man no No, what i mean is that for example apple uh, won't go lobbying say hey uh basic income you know is bad you know listen to stefan molyneux stuff like that you know they'll just you know say okay if you want to give people more money you know we'll just raise our prices they won't try to, you know, change anything, just try to profit from it. But you you say profit like this, this is some sort of bad thing. I don't, I don't, and what, what's, what's, what you have some, oh, they're profiting. It's like, okay, yeah, of course they're profiting. I mean, you're hoping to profit from this phone call or at least this conversation. At least I hope you are. <laughs> I don't understand why profit is a bad thing. People who vote for this guaranteed national income, uh, or minimum income are hoping to profit to the tune of ten to fifteen thousand euros for the mere act of casting a vote. I mean, I don't understand why profit is automatically this negative thing. So then, uh, why are you making this show? You know, instead of running a business and you know, making more money. I mean, I guess it, you think it's... well because because I mean, a business is defined by its well, sorry, a business, the success of a business is defined by its capacity to generate profits. But that doesn't mean that every decision every human being makes is about profit. I mean, the, the mere act of having children is cash negative for just about everyone who doesn't sell them for parts in Brooklyn. And so, you know, the fact that you have kids means that there's things that you're looking to do that are more to do with mere material profit. Uh, but profit as a general, in general, means that I am better off, I'm happier, I'm more fulfilled, uh, or as Aristotle would say, I am using my capacities in the greatest pursuit of excellence, and in particular moral excellence, which is the best and surest path to happiness, according to many philosophers, myself included. So I am profiting from this show. I'm, I certainly wasn't making as much money when I quit my executive career in software to start this show, but... I was happier and what I was doing was and remains more meaningful and better for the world. So I am, quote, profiting in terms of happiness. And that's really what profit comes down to is um, you expend resources and in return you hope to get uh, happiness. And sometimes we do it right and sometimes we don't. But that's the plan. It's just that happiness in business tends to be um, ledger-based, tends to be profit and loss-based. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, and one other thing... Uh Okay, what do you think about increasing taxes for the rich? You know, that's something that they're talking about. You know, for example, they, uh, I can't remember where, but I remember one politician or someone was talking about a $1 billion cap. You no, know, meaning that 
uh, no person should be allowed to make more than one billion dollars. You know, and I think that's uh, so childish, you know, but. There are a lot of I, I think I think if politicians want to propose that, I think that's a reasonable proposition on one condition, which is that if no person is allowed to control more than one billion dollars in the private sector, then nobody should be allowed to control more than one billion dollars in the public sector, which means no more projects more than a billion dollars, no more loans or borrowing or allocations or anything that is more than a billion dollars per politician per year. So I think and if it's if it's no one's allowed to have a billion dollars over the course of their lifetime, fantastic. Then no politician is allowed to allocate uh, or spend or borrow more than a billion dollars over the course of entire of his entire political career. I think that would be. I would actually take that deal. Are you sure? Yeah, but it would never happen because politicians end up spending far more money than people in the private sector could even dream of. I mean, what did they just lose? Forty-five billion dollars in Afghanistan. I mean, they just they don't know where it is. Just gone. $45 billion. They just shipped a whole crate loads of money over there. It's just gone. So, yeah, I think uh, and that's just one tiny sector of one tiny country of, of one war that the U.S. is involved in. They, they lose more than that behind the couch in the Department of Defense every three months. Okay, but uh, if they do that, uh, who's going to, you know, be the future innovators? You know, who's going to create the next Microsoft or Apple or Facebook if... You can have more than a billion dollars, you know. Oh, no, I get all of that. I mean, I, I only say that, what I was saying facetiously. Of course, it's immoral. Yeah, I agree. I was also thinking that it would be uh, really interesting if, you know, voting was like, you know, uh, in, you know, in companies, uh, you vote depending on how much taxes you pay. You know, that's how much, you know, your vote is worth, if you get on me. No, that, that used to be how voting worked. Through, I mean, in most societies up until the 19th century, the le- later part of the 19th century, that's how most democracies voted, is that if you wanted to have a vote, you had to have at least a lower middle-class income. And the reason for that, of course, was the well-known problem in democracy, which apparently was forgotten for the 10 billionth time in the West uh, in the 20th century, the well-known problem in democracy is that if you allow everyone to vote, the poor people who outnumber the rich will vote to take away the property of the rich, and then everyone ends up poor. And this happens repeatedly every time democracy is implemented, and that's why there was a property restriction on voting. And that, of course, ended, and, um, well, everything played out, as we've seen. Uh, I just wanted to ask you something else. Uh, How do you think that this is going to play out in the future, you know, poor people wanting to take rich people's money, you know, and stuff. Would there be like a revolution in France or something like that? You know, crucifying... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there there is a problem which Charles Murray has talked about in, in a book called Coming Apart. And I touched on it in a recent show, so I'll just touch on it even more briefly here. But there's divergent IQs in society. And that is a big problem. Like, what is called this a divergence of, of income, income disparity has a lot to do with IQ disparity. A higher IQ correlates pretty well with job, deform- de- job performance, uh, 0.54 correlation. Um, increased wealth, increased income, economic growth, livability in a U.S. state is a 0.8 correlation. Cooperation, life expectancy, IQ and life expectancy is a 0.85. Infant mortality is a minus 0.84. In other words, it's inversely correlated. 
And that is a, a big factor. Um, high IQ equa- equals a high living standard. So the U.S. has an average IQ of 98. It has a GDP that's 58 times that of sub-Saharan Africa, where the average IQ is about 67, for a variety of reasons. I'm sure a lot to do with culture, environment, and, and health. So it's not wealth that makes people smarter. It's smarter people generally tend to equal some increase in, uh, in productive capacity. So every time, each 10-point increase in IQ approximately doubles economic growth, providing, of course, that the country has a market economy, um, unlike, you know, early China and, and uh, all of that. And so the degree to which IQ or intelligence is genetic it seems to be quite strongly correlated. Uh, and um, it is a complicated topic, and again, I'm scarcely uh, an uh, expert on this, but the correlation of the IQs of identical twins is, is high at 0.86. One is a perfect correlation, zero is none. 0.86, so it's 86% correlated, you could say, even when they've been reared apart, IQ of identical twins. Fraternal twins and siblings have a 0.6 correlation. And um, it tends to be pretty constant throughout life. So the same IQ test was given to the same people at ages 11 and 77. The correlation between the two test results was 0.73. So there was not a huge amount of environmental influence on intelligence during the intervening 66 years. A test for the intelligence of babies predicts their later intelligence, which further indicates heritability, um, the, the odds are about two to one that an individual's adult IQ will fall within three points of his IQ at age eight. So there does seem to be some pretty strong genetic or biological bases for intelligence. And if that's true, then as Charles Murray points out, this increasing capacity of or, or this increased migration of more intelligent people to cluster together through Ivy League schools, through particular zip codes, uh, through particular high intelligence requiring occupations and so on, that they tend to get hoovered up and move to particular enclaves means that high IQ people tend to be breeding with high IQ people and lower IQ people these days are breeding with lower IQ people. This is creating a gap within society. And um, he's actually made the case for the sort of guaranteed national income. I don't know. I've not read it. I I just know that he's made the case. And um, I I would assume it's because it... um, uh, the, the, the lower IQ jobs tend to be replaced, obviously, more quickly than the higher IQ jobs. And some higher IQ jobs, it seemed incomprehensible that they could ever be replaced. But lower IQ, when lower IQ people have their jobs displaced by machinery, it's not like they say, okay, I'll be a lawyer, <laughs> right? I mean, because um, their IQ is a limiting factor, just as, you know, my follicles are a limiting factor in me running uh, a mohawk across the top of my cranium. And um, or height, you know, is a limiting or whatever, right? So there are limiting factors and intelligence is a limiting factor. There is some neuroplasticity, but it does not appear to be the case that you can take someone from an IQ that is um, 80 and make it 120. That doesn't seem to be the case. And Head Start, which was supposed to get all this stuff done, uh, has had, you know, just massive amounts of flaming wreckage uh, come out of the high hopes that were originally behind it. So the idea that... um, there is a fixed human intelligence that to some degree is fixed by genes that seems to be somewhat impervious to significant environmental impacts uh, and that there may be a growing divergence between smart and not so smart uh, means that the more intelligent people are creating 
automations, then those automations, um, those, um, you know, you don't need a postman because there's email and most postmen couldn't invent email. Uh, and so lower IQ occupations are steadily being diminished. But that doesn't mean that lower IQ people can train themselves for higher IQ occupations. And uh, so I, I, would, I don't know what his argument is, but I could see a case being made that in some, at some level, whether it's government or not, but at some level, society gets sophisticated enough that lower IQ people can't do a whole lot to contribute economically to that society. So much has been automated. And so it, I, could, I could see there being a case to be made. Obviously, I wouldn't want it through a government, but I could see a, um, uh, a case to be made to say, look, society has been automated to the point where anybody who doesn't have an IQ of 110 or more isn't really going to be able to contribute that much. But of course, you know, they're still human beings. We care about them, equal rights to everyone. So let's set up a situation where this, the, the products of this automation can flow to people in some sort of guaranteed minimum income. And, you know, smart people who love what they do can continue to do the smart things that they love to do. But, you know, given that we don't need, we've got robot janitors, uh, we've got robot nurses, we've got robot uh, cars that drive themselves, we've, you know, whatever. We've got robot plumbers. We, you know, all, all of this stuff has been eliminated. Uh, if society ends up in a place where there's a widening gap between IQ levels and I can see it, again, this is all theoretical and who knows when and who knows how or who knows if, but I could see where if there's more and more automation and lower and lower IQ people are having trouble finding ways to contribute to an increasingly technologically advanced and sophisticated society, I could see where it'd be like, yeah, you know, voluntarily, hopefully it gives you some money and, and uh, you know, go have your life and we'll do the stuff that we enjoy and so on. Implementing it, of course, would be a huge problem, and, and there's lots of different things that could go wrong, as they inevitably would. But nonetheless, uh, I think it is certainly possible that uh, I could see situations where that could be conceivably advantageous. Uh, no, I'm actually against it. <laughs> I feel like, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, if you can contribute. No. Uh, so, you, you, what, what do you mean by survival of the fittest? Are, are you talking about, like, if there's no jobs available for people with lower IQs that, um, what, they should starve or what? Maybe, who knows, you know. I mean, if there are no taxes, you know, no welfare, you know, you say that charity can do all the work, but, you know, I seriously doubt that charity can raise, you know, trillions of dollars. You think the charity would not be enough to help those situations? Yeah. All right. Well, um, I think that uh, if there aren't jobs for people, uh, and, and we already do this, right? I mean, if there are people who have IQs of 70 or whatever, and if they can't do anything particularly productive, then usually people are there to sort of help them out. And um, I think that um, that's fine. Uh, and I, I contribute to that kind of stuff. I think it's it's great. So... Anyway, we're talking extremely theoretical stuff many years again in the future. So uh, I really appreciate your call. Listen, feel free to call back in anytime. Okay, bye. And uh, I think that, yeah, that's it for our show tonight. I'm looking forward to the next one already. Please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. 
this don't work for free. And um, if you consume resources contributing to their maintenance, I think is a reasonably just and fair thing to do. Don't have to do it for the first bunch that you listen to. But at some point, you know what the right thing to do is and you know when the right time to do is it. Just listen to your conscience. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful week. We will talk to you Wednesday night.